It's time for class. Civics just doesn't begin and end on election day. This is Sunday Civics, the home for the civically engaged with political strategist L. Joy Williams on Sirius XM's Urban View. Good morning, good morning, and welcome to Sunday Civics. I'm your host, your civics teacher and neighborhood political strategist L. Joy Williams. And today we are diving into a topic that touches every sphere of our lives, diversity and inclusion. You, those of you probably hold a DNI title. That's what we mean when we're talking about diversity and inclusion. So it is more than a trendy phrase. And even though people are being laid off with that title right now, it is about ensuring everyone's voice is heard, be it in the corporate space, the government space, in the public nonprofit space, any spaces, um, even in the political space. But I want to move from DNI and just talk about equity in general. And we have a great guest to talk about it, who has been at the front of the class before, Ifo Masanachi Ike, who is the author of The Equity Mindset, Designing Human Spaces Through Journeys, Reflections, and Practices. And she urges us to look beyond the numbers <laughs> of checking boxes or picking tokens and really dig into eliminating bias and promoting fairness. And in the midst of the debates about affirmative action and diversity programs, this conversation couldn't be more timely. These initiatives are facing scrutiny. Um, like I said, people are being laid off and people are like, I want to move away from DNI into a more space that, at least what I think people are just like, that makes white people more comfortable. But we'll see. <laughs> These uh, programs aim at, in actuality to like level the playing field. And it's hard to do that, but that is the purpose in education and in corporate America specifically, and also in government and politics. <clears throat> so by embracing diverse perspectives, we actually pave the way for more inclusive policies and more inclusive ways of being. So our chat with Ifema Sanache today will explore how we can bring the lessons from her book into our civic life, into our politics, into your corporate space, into your nonprofit space. And it'll impact how we can engage in politics and governance overall. It's about crafting spaces where everyone is seen, heard, and valued, but more importantly, that people get the things that they need. <laughs> so as we delve into the equity mindset today, I want to remind you of the rich ideas that can emerge when we welcome different voices and experiences to the table. So we're gonna come back and dive deep into this conversation with Ife Masanache Ike to unravel her book, the principles that she set forth, but also how you can apply this not in not only in the corporate space you may be, the education space you may be, but also in our politics and in our civic life. And you may want to pick up this book, maybe you want to give it to your boss, <laughs> maybe you want to have your company buy a whole bunch of them and distribute them through all the departments. So we'll talk about that a bit more when we come back here on Sunday Civics. Stay tuned. Who is the I will let you know. Welcome back to Sunday Civics with your host, Eljoy Williams. I am thrilled to announce our next guest. 
Ife Masanachi Ige, who is the founder and equity weaver at Pink Corn Rolls, which is a Black femme-led social impact policy and equity firm. She is also the author of the new book, The Equity Mindset, Designing Human Spaces Through Journeys, Reflections, and Practices. She's a passionate advocate, a policy advisor, a founder. She has a robust legal background. She, she out in these streets doing a lot. You may remember her as Ify. That's what we call her here at Sunday Civic. Welcome to the front of the class again, Ify. Hey, how are you? I am so happy to be back here. It's been a while. My my kind of like tortoise shell retreat was because of this book. So it's good to be back, be back outside, as as the kids would say. Um, thank you for inviting me. Yeah. Like when your book coming out, that's a whole nother conversation. We'll get to we'll get to that. Cause there you you yourself are prolific, not only teacher, instructor, but I'm here like Eljoy, I need to be on the reverse introducing Eljoy and and her book. Well, well, you 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 teasing secrets right now. So let's let's oh, oh, let's hold that. But moving on, because Nike wrote a book, so let's just talk about the equity mindset. Which I think, what is it? Two weeks out already? If no, it's 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 only been a week this past Wednesday. So, however, when people listen to it, it'll be a little over a week going into the second week. And really excited about it. It was a it was a number one release during pre orders time, but that you don't necessarily know what that means. But even um, after the official release, it's still been um, either number one or a top release in a couple different areas, which is not so much that it's important, which is important, but it's really about, as you know, like for me, the impact is really around how people get a little bit more nuanced around these topics that have often been either seen as a conversation that for those that are mostly impacted by oppression and unjust laws, we've had to figure it out ourselves. Or the flip side is it's been so <laughs> academiaized that we have been left out of the conversation. So this book, in many ways, when I see that people are getting it, I recognize that there are more people even outside of my own comfort <laughs> zone that are having conversations, maybe even for the first time around like their surroundings and the ways that like laws, society, and some of our biases have just been normalized to our detriment. And then like, what can we do about it? So we're going to get into a bit later, you know, the, what equity is in this current landscape that we're in. Um, but I want to focus on what you argue or lay out in the book for right mm -hmm. now, because you set out, one, you define what equity spaces are. And two, what those principles really are of when you are looking to design these spaces, whether they be in governments, in a corporate uh, standpoint, in a nonprofit standpoint, you've really been involved and have worked in a lot of these different spaces. And you consult and advise um, in these different spaces on creating more equitable workplaces, more equitable living spaces. <laughs> All of those things. So can you talk a bit about defining what an equitable space is? And then I want to talk about what your principles are in that aspect. Yeah. 
So let me go straight to the imagination. This is kind of cool because I'm usually the one that asks people this question so that they can imagine. I don't know if I've ever been asked this. So for me, for me and my body and my being, an equitable space for me would completely welcome the disabilities that I have. It would make time for me, whether that's for the disabilities or the the recognition that rest is something that Black women deserve or the recognition that the concept of production, whether I can produce well or not, that like there is something about like human beings needing time to do the work that they do. I do focus on labor a lot, largely because of the historical bequeathdom that we all have kind of inherited as it relates to labor, we have this kind of like American story or narrative that if you work hard, you get what you want. But we don't really talk about how as a community and specifically the intersections of who you are really do determine what type of labor you have access to, or at least those before you had access to, and what that actually means for you now to have a robust quality of life. So an equitable culture or an equitable space would not look at Eljoy necessarily the same ways that it looks at Ifoma. It would actually take into account, well, what was Eljoy's journeys? What was Eljoy's mama's journey? What was Eljoy's grandmother's journey to the point where Eljoy has to survive? And what are the tools that are missing at this point um, that make it harder for Eljoy to compete? So when I think of the definition of equity, the biggest issue that I have is that we don't really talk about gap filling. I think a lot of times equity has really been focused on some of it is a little bit too emotional for me. Is this feel good thing? Um, we want equity. We want folks to, you know, we want people to feel included and we want there to be more representation. We can get, we'll get on that in a second. There's also this, this concept around fairness. And I'm not saying that that's not a part of equity, but we really miss that equity is a measurement. We only talk about equity because there's inequity. So equity in many ways is not just an outcome. It is the processes that we need to put into place to actually reduce gaps. This is also called data. And it's very interesting to me how many spaces talk about being data informed. But when it comes to the data around the gaps, they shrink from it. And mm. so the equity mindset is like, not being afraid of taking the data that is and also the data that's been hidden and really kind of getting into the space of being a problem solver because you do desire for all human beings to actually be as empowered as they can be in whatever spaces that they're in. And because our economic well-being is so connected to not only how we thrive, by how, but how our communities are able to survive, I focus on labor, but obviously the equity mindset can apply in and does apply in so many different spaces, but it is a choice. And I think that that is the part that is becoming a reality for a lot of my clients is that just because you put a mission statement or just because you have a program that focuses on a marginalized community, that in itself does not make it an equitable program. The equity is really about how you entered into that space, recognizing your power, privilege, and access, how you utilize your power, privilege, and access to expand what other people are able to do and how they're able to see their futures 
but also how you um, wrestle with your own personal identity, which I feel like is the biggest issue that I have about DNI spaces and or EDI spaces is that it feels like we can workshop our way through this as if we're robots, but it's human beings that are delivering these services. It's human beings that have actually gone through their own journeys, whether they acknowledge it or not. And that to me is what this book, this book is like, I call it like a gumbo of different kinds. Um, it's not for people to take a definition and run with the definition. It's for people to actually struggle with how do I, as an imperfect individual who has inherited certain things because of who I am, become the best problem solver I can be, regardless of what environment that I'm in. And I do argue, and this kind of bleeds into your principles question, I do argue that some of that is overloading yourself with the voices that have been removed from the leadership of this work and kind of making that the new normal as just like a, a baseline. So this book doesn't give all the answers, but it does invite people to have different conversations with different people that are doing this work, but are also connected to the, the harsh side of marginalization. Hmm. We're talking to Ify Ike, who is the author of the new book, The Equity Mindset. I have lots of questions <laughs> like about, uh, about the book of, you know, how does this, you know, the people who are, let me start with the first one. Who is this book for, right? Yes. Who should be, who should be picking this up and reading it? Let's start there. I will say this. It's so cliche for authors to be like, it's for everyone. But because <laughs> um, like everyone should get the book. But I, I, I really, really, really have been surprised that the people that are closest to me that have gotten the book. This last week, all I've been hearing has been things like, oh my God, when you shared your story about, you know, having to, being the poor kid in school and you, you're around a whole bunch of kids that are affluent. So there's absolutely nothing that you have that's going to impress them. So what's the thing you can impress them with? Your labor. Like I had a principal say, that was literally the story of my life. I had another person share what it was like to deal with like social services, whether it's you know, child protective services or what have you, or assumptions of abuse within your family and what that means when you're in a school setting. And it's like, what is going on? Is this a trap? Right? Like, oh my God, I, I know that feeling. So I say this to say that I moved with the, the, pra the, the reality of in my work where as a researcher and a lawyer, I believe in data and facts. You believe in data and facts. But if data and facts were enough to get us out of the mess that we were in, we would be out of that mess. Data and facts aren't enough. So I do a lot of modeling, um, and I chuckle because in some ways, you know, it, it's, it's foolish modeling, um, but I do a lot of modeling through storytelling and through narratives to really have people see some of themselves in either my story or in a very purposeful voyeuristic way, have them see a journey that is completely different than theirs to be like, well, damn, if this is what this person who does this work and shows up in front of corporations and businesses and electeds and what have you, I am not showing up as just like a blank slate. This person came from various touch points that have informed 
the type of problem solving that they do today. And so my audience, I would say broadly, are for people who are at the, that their work really relies on equity to be either a practice or equity is an outcome that they're achieving regardless of what industry that they're in. And how do they keep the drumbeat, which for some people started around 2020, but for many people, they've been doing this for a very long time. And mm-hmm. so for those that are asking themselves, why do I still keep doing this work? And it feels like we're not winning or what is it that we're going to have to do differently when we are seeing a bit of a dip in the national attention around equity? This is this book can be a motivator. I like to say it's kind of like a pocket thought partner okay. for that person that's like, this is my work and I have to stay committed to it. So what can I run to? which is why the chapters are intentionally short. Some of them are really funny. Some of them are really like personal. It's, it's not intended to be preachy to you. It's intended for you to keep, keep doing the work. But the flip side is I do think that there are people that struggle with why is this important? Mm -hmm. And I think that, that, that could look like many different faces and doesn't necessarily look like people that are just, you know, white or in power. But I do, I do find it interesting that while I definitely had my clients in mind, because I, I've been running a curriculum called the Equity Mindset for years, it's been interesting how, like, my people have also been like, yeah, like, these are conversations I haven't had with myself about, like, you know, what it means. There's this one chapter, for example, that's called Front Your Issues with Black Women. Mm, and- yeah, I know. <laughs> Um, there's a whole, I mean, in, in that chapter in particular, because I haven't read the whole thing yet, but just like, you know, skipped around in preparation for our talk today. That chapter in particular, I just want to like, you know, obviously want to up your sales and like, you know, buy it and send it to people and tell people they need to buy it. But that chapter in particular to send to people who love to hire Black women, but then don't. You know, they, they, you know, those of you who are listening right now, you work in a space where everybody loves you. They be like, oh, we love if she do this. And again, talking about the labor, right? She always does the work, even when it's not hers and she got to do it by herself and like all that kind of stuff. But they don't know the fullness of you. And mm-hmm. you're often gaslit and you're, you know, often, oh, you can take all this work because you can do it. Not recognizing that the all the other things that you hold. I want to send that to so many previous bosses that I've had and and I'm not just saying just white bosses there are black men I want to send that to there are Latino men I want to send this to um and obviously there are white women I want to send this to right like to you know to confront your issues in that space and a lot of people who are listening are currently in that space where they have they, they are and it's not like, you know, during the 80s and remember during the 80s and 90s where people were like, I'm the token, right? right. It's more or less that, you know, it's not that token ma- mindset or experience. It's a different kind of experience. It's, it's different. I would, so I would argue some, so in the inter- introduction, I do a very sharp call out that if you don't move out any further, what I'm not going to do is I'm not going to dismiss the labor of mostly Black women and femme folk that were at the forefront of really what has not only caused a huge 
shift in how we look at politics and social policy. Shout out to your work and Higher Heights and all the different people that are behind the scenes that people don't know every day are chipping away at these issues um, that lead to victories, big and small, across the nation. But there's also this yo-yo effect of like, we, people love our production, but they also love to invisibilize us as well. Right. And when they're invisibilizing us, what that also means is that what we carry as we bring forward these victories, and I'm not saying anything new to anybody who's listening, all those things then don't get factored. And again, this is about how we shift cultures. You don't really shift too many cultures without some type of policy, whether it's legislative policy, communal policy, social policy, organizational policy. If you don't know what the issues are, if you don't know what I'm struggling with, you don't know to fix it. So that confronts your issues with Black women starts in a very poem-like way with the first time my back went out when I was at work. And, you know, I'm a girl with girls. I thought that it was just like, you know, even though it was that like tip top shape, I was working out every day, but I was like, maybe much, maybe it's my chest. Maybe it's my, it's wild how I was literally blaming my body mm-hmm. and blaming myself for the fact that my body snapped at a 90 degree angle. And just this feeling of like being pulled away from work, being, you know, getting taken to the doctors or what have you. But it happened multiple times and I didn't have any literature. I definitely didn't have a community of women that talked to me about the impact of stress Mm. and the impact of hostile environments and what that does when you're holding it in as you're producing. I want people to read this because I don't know if they know that this is this is something that is actually controllable. This is not something I have to endure. This is not something Black women have to endure. And I think there's this narrative that like Black women like to complain, that we like to just like share all the things that ain't working for us. When it's like, actually, inherently, most of us actually like to work well. We like, we, we, we actually want to do well. We want to win. And when win. it's, and, and particularly when it's something that you're good at, that you am often that you love. Like, you want to do it. I, I do think it. you want to, like, I want to go to work because I love the work that I do and I engage it. What I don't like is this extraness that you, that is added on, you know, that I have to manage and deal with Sis. while I'm doing it. Okay, so we can talk about who all this because I got to take a break. But I just, just before we take a quick break, I want to put this in context, right? Because yeah. as I was listening to you describe it a little, little bit in the beginning, beginning, I do remember being in one particular space where you're talking about like all of the things, all of yourself that you have to bring into Mm -hmm. the space. And sometimes I don't want them all in my business. I don't want them to know that I, the reason why I can't go on the weekend and hang out and all that kind of stuff is, or have the extra money to travel or whatever is because I, I take care of my mama and them. And, you know, that I don't want them all in my space and in my <laughs> business to then view me as this charity case or, you know, the stereotypical Black, you know, like, I don't want them. I want to come to work. I'm do my work. I want to go home. I ain't trying to be friends with nobody. I ain't trying to do all of that. So, and and then we're also 
in still in a capitalist structure where your labor is the only thing that the company cares about. It's just like, yeah, yeah, I understand you got back issues and everything like that. But like, what's up with that write up, though? Right. <laughs> so so how how do we. How, how are we able, how are people able to view that in this space, um, in this equity mindset, in this space when I don't want to reveal all of that? I don't think that the I use the tool of partial revelation and storytelling as a way to hack how the normalized and also often white space of DNI, and I say DNI intentionally because equity work I don't believe is DNI work, but it gets lumped into DNI work. And so explain what DNI is. So in the book, I talk about how like diversity and inclusion are absolutely important. Diversity and inclusion, and that's diversity and inclusion, especially today, are extremely important, not necessarily because of just the substance of it, which is literally just an extension of affirmative action and some of the other laws and policies that organizations have adopted to increase certain things or to repair um, certain harms that have happened specifically in the labor force. Most organizations then have crafted their own and in some ways subjective standards as to what that means as far as from everything from hiring, firing, promotions, and various representation trends. Inclusion, more of an of a of a larger conversation. I love that you raised tokenism before. So inclusion in many ways has been an additional discipline, if you will, that focuses on how people can actually um, coexist with less harm, belong, feel that they belong in spaces that are dominant where they're dominantly in the minority. And for most spaces, that means that they are either in white spaces or deal with whiteness. And I love that you said that even some of your bosses of color, Black male bosses, all of those spaces, all of us have, have, have subscribed or have automatically been subscribed to a racist society. So we participate in whiteness, whether we subscribe to it or not, which is why there are anecdotes of even Black women having Black women bosses that treat them in a certain way. And I'm like, that makes sense because the pipeline of leadership is still built in a capitalistic, white, male, patriarchal model. So we all model that. Until you're aware of it, you are modeling that and you're going to practice some of those things on people that come in after you. Equity, like I stated, equity is a larger umbrella. I come into equity work not as an HR person. I come into equity work as a human rights lawyer and as a movement lawyer and as a researcher who has just been infatuated with like, why are the disparities, regardless of what state you're in, the same for the same demographics? That is an equity question. That is a question around like, what then can we fix? Who needs to be empowered and who are the decision makers to actually shrink those gaps? You can do DNI and not touch on equity. You can have a great Taco Tuesday and not have anything to do with like the treatment of marginalized people within your community, within your organization, organization. And this is particularly true in organizations where when I first started doing the equity mindset, I was speaking to mostly tech and engineering spaces. When it came to especially black women, we were severely outnumbered. So for me, the other issue with DNI is that DNI focuses, I think, or at least the practices I've seen, it still centers the comfort of whiteness mm -hmm. around us. 
it doesn't just objectively look at the gaps and look at like ask questions that a lot of white spaces don't like to answer, like who's in power and how long have you been in power? Who are the decision makers? And is there something wrong with why these trends, like these promotions don't just happen on themselves? Who makes the promotions? Who are the managers and how have they been trained? Those questions are not just DNI questions. Those questions are about power. And that is about equity. So, so just for folks that were like, I don't see the difference, it's okay. And I will also sh share very quickly before we go to break, the reason why you don't see the difference is because there has been a little bit of a trend of justice-minded, social justice-minded people that have assumed the roles of DNI, mostly Black women, that come into that space holding that title, but they have a much larger, expansive way of understanding DNI so that it is inclusive of social justice and equity principles. So what some people know as DNI actually is a broader equity framework. It's just that the person who's holding the title um, has the title that was, you know, bestowed to them. But, you know, and I think this is a good way to end before we go to break. We're also seeing a huge firing and yeah. exiting of Black women in those positions and complete disillusions of those spaces as they were, you know, as they expanded equity, they're now shrinking back to this one organization now doesn't even like using DEIB, which is diversity, equity, inclusion, and belong belonging. They said that they feel it's too hostile. One of their coworkers, one of their colleagues reached out to our company to say they now want to call it togetherness and joy. And they were nervous. Yeah. They said togetherness and joy. And we are now working with how they get to maneuver and keep the programs that literally increased the representation of people of color by a scintilla over the last five years. But they have a white woman manager who said that, like, I want to go to togetherness and joy because this DEIB is too is too harsh for me. Well, that that is a good point. We're going to take a quick break because when I come back, um, for those of you who are thinking how this how this then connects to civic engagement and political and government work, we're going to talk about <laughs> the impact of that and um, equity from there. We are talking with Ife Ike, um, who is the author of The Equity Mindset. We'll be right back on Sunday Civic. How can it be that you love the most unlovable part of me? Welcome back to Sunday Civics. I'm Eljoy Williams, your civics teacher, and we are here with MVEK, who is the author of the author of the Equity Mindset, designing human spaces through journeys, reflections, and practices. Ify, I will say that the the the, the opening, the forward from your mama, I love mamas. But so that was that was delightful. That was delightful. That is yeah. actually the most that that is I've received the most text about my mom's forward. I I think that in, in all honesty, while I she is my mother. My mother was and still is an essential worker. I wanted the book to start with a voice. Let me say this. I think that part of, you talked about principles earlier. Part of my personal principles around equity is that number one, the solutions, we hold the solutions already. And number two, part of the way that we reclaim a lot of what's been taken from our communities is by intentionally centering those voices that are the spaces of wisdom, but they are just, <clears throat> we take them for granted, even, even within our own community. And so my mom and her, I mean, obviously I had to edit down her, her, her responses, but like, it was beautiful to see how 
without hesitation, I would ask her these questions. And it was just, she's just pouring, 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 pouring all this, you know, experience, her own definition, the the beauty of what it means to be somebody who was not born in this country and know what equity feels like and how, when it when it's real. I think it's beautiful, for example, that, and I want people to get this, so I don't want to spoil it, but when she talks about how she can even be in spaces where the the labor itself is intense, but because the culture, the space, the environment is so safe, she would prefer to be a nurse in some of the most, you know, tense situations at times 12-hour, 18-hour shifts because the people were so invested, <clears throat> excuse me, in each other that she'd rather do that than sit and, and be, you know, sit passively at a desk where it, it just, the culture was not, was not sound. I hope that resonates with people that are in the power of culture creation because it's not about the work most of the times, as you mentioned earlier before the break. People actually want to come in and do their job and do it well. But there are so many things we actually can control about our environments. And I just love that my mother, if she wasn't my mother, who she represents as a dark-skinned woman from the continent, didn't have papers when she got here. Like, she represents, I think, a lot of different journeys that we often ignore in this work. Yeah. You know, you know, for those who are thinking quite often when I get pitched to have authors on the show or to have guests, I often will, you know, suggest to Karen, you know, to Clay Kane's show because it's not connected to civic engagement, politics, government, whatever. And I'm like, oh, this will be great because they have daily shows and they can, you know, talk about various things. And so I will often, if there's no civic angle or no engagement angle, like, you know, pass it off. But, you know, in reading some of the some of the pieces that I've uh, read so far, I wanted to talk about this specifically, as I talked about in the beginning of the show. We, as you mentioned, are in a space where people are ending their diversity and inclusion programs. They are shifting and changing. Before even the affirmative action decision happened, people were shifting and changing. Mm -hmm. Then the affirmative action decision came, which was about two specific colleges and their programs. It's not about affirmative action and sort of diversity programs overall, right? So people like ran, it was like, oh, this is like diversity programs are over. The Supreme Court says so. It was like, y'all don't read, do you? Because I just... (laughs) What they read was they read society. So for right. many of us, we knew that this case, the minute the Supreme Court years ago said they were going to review this case, we were like, this is about killing right. affirmative action, just like Shelby V. Holder was about killing right. voting rights, right. right? Yeah. So, you know, so we're in this space. It's yeah. also post-George Floyd uprising where sort of the white guilt and we ought to do something about this period is over and people are shifting because people only, if you don't experience it and you don't come from it, you think, oh, we got to do something because it's on the headlines, not that we have to do something because it's the right thing to do and the more equitable thing to do. And we need to adopt this into our overall work and not just something to speak to the times. But 
how does an equity mindset play out in a government sense, in government delivering services, and also in a political space, right? right? Because we're getting ready to embark on another presidential cycle, another election cycle. And, you know, one of our upcoming episodes, I'm talking about how is a campaign equitable? How is, you know, you know, so I wanted to get from you because into that. <laughs> right. Because you are not just right. So like you mentioned, you don't come to this work from an HR perspective. Right. We're not talking about this in that context. You come from a human rights, social justice. You worked on the Hill, <laughs> you know, that pe- that is still not diverse, by the way. You come from that space. I worked so, in the city that is still right. That is still not right. Uh, So we may have visual representation in terms of leadership, in terms of all of our, you know, electeds may be black in New York City right now. Not all, but majority. Right. In terms of leadership. But it's still not equitable. No. How do we put that into context in terms of our civic life? So very quickly, let me highlight that part of the problem with equity is not just an equity issue, an equity application. It's the fact that we live in a society that's very binary and very input-output. And what I mean by that is that, again, think of the concept of workshops. Workshops in a corporate setting mirror a teacher in the front of the classroom. You do ABC, DEE happens. That is a, in, in the positive, I just recently read an article, I forget the publication, that said that like in 2020, companies called out for there to be more diversity in their in their organizations. And lo and behold, we do. We have an increase of diversity, notably black and brown talent in across various industries as a result of that call to action. Now, this is the problem. Input output. For a lot of spaces, they feel like I did my job. We did what we're supposed to do. We've got the people here. Let's see how it goes. It'll automatically get better because representation representation has increased. So I want people to put that on one part of the shelf. The other part is that there are a lot of spaces where their efforts fell flat. A lot of spaces. Now, an equity mindset would interrogate certain things like who delivered that that programming, who designed that programming. But what often happens is if, if for whatever reason the ESG group or your your employee resource group did not, you know, pop off the way that it was that people wanted it to pop off. Or if for whatever reason, whatever the company offered, once they did a poll internally, black and brown talent, disabled talent, queer talent were like, this didn't really kind of hit the mark. Then companies start getting deflated and and discouraged. And or if their numbers don't change because they hired a new person and they did not, it did not necessarily shift how many people were, were how many, you know, people from diverse backgrounds were actually hired, then the, there's this concept of everything has failed. And that is, that to me is just, that is a very Eurocentric way of thinking that we can't glean gems or glean lessons even from failure as we're trying to do this work. And so I put that, I just put that out there that like what it has been the, the, the sadness around affirmative action is that 
I think a lot of white spaces thought that Black people especially were upset at the Supreme Court decision because affirmative action was working. Affirmative action was not actually working. Affirmative action was a promise that was fought for by Black activists, by Black civil rights leaders that became the benefit of mostly white women and Asian American communities, that Black people were fighting for the hope of the promise of the thing that they fought for to actually apply to them. And like again, American democracy. Correct. And so I want people to understand that when something that wasn't, that was intended to be designed specifically by law for us does not come to fruition and that gets taken away, we are actually scrambling for like, then what is the remedy? A faulty remedy is still something you can work with, but a remedy that then gets, a, a faulty remedy that gets taken away where the, the energy and the motivation is also decreasing means that those who are the most marginalized have to once again be at the forefront of fighting, not just for themselves, because Black people have never fought just for themselves, but to literally make sure that equity is real in multiple spaces. So when that comes to government and politics, overlapping concepts, but also very different. As you know, like we've worked on like how to design offices in municipal levels. That to me is actually really, I think, where equity can really thrive because you can, you can, you can ask these like, you know, fractal, you can create fractal progress by investigating different things like, get me the data on how communities within this locale have been treated. Let's, let's figure out and measure, measure the efficacy of program distribution and let's provide guidance to the people that are in power to support that work. And the higher you go up with like these tools of um, change that can create mass, mass impact, the better. Like when I was working in the city, um, I advised on like the mental health executive order. I advised on, I co-drafted the, the, the first, you know, equity executive order for the city of New York. It wasn't that that was going to fix everything. Somebody could look at it and be like, oh, that's a failure. We didn't get equ equity. didn't happen overnight. And it's like, yeah, but we have a model of what it means for the person who in, in any locale, the mayor, is basically the president of the area. And they get to say, because of this executive order, I am demanding that these departments have to report. On, you can, it's not enough to tell me that you created a program to support black and brown children. Show me, show me the stats on how that has actually improved so that we can have some accountability. And more importantly, how you attempted to do it, which I think is important because, you know, part of the issues that we have, you know, you can set benchmarks and say agencies have to have this, you know, percentage of contracts or things like that. but you know, it goes back to primary school. Show me your work. Show me your work. Show words. me how you attempted to reach this. And I think that when we are investigating and asking these questions of government agencies, mm -hmm. of politicians, our elected officials, it's we should ask to show the work. So we can give an example because you and I work together on staffing yep. an elected office. Yep. Right. And I use often the example. We didn't have a checklist and say, OK, we need one Mexican-American. We need one. <laughs> like we didn't have that through the process. Right. We started first where, OK, here is the descriptions that can be more inclusive in terms of the people that we're looking for. Is a degree needed? 
Is it more experience, right? Like having the conversations of what's needed to fill this role. And then we talked about, okay, now it makes no sense if we're just going to have the description and say it's inclusive and then post it on a website that nobody goes to, right? Like how do we do outreach to those people who may not be thinking of, to organizations who are closer to the, you know, pockets of people that we're looking to and saying, here, you know, distribute this. This is what we're looking for from there. So then you are actively looking in spaces for people, you know, from that role. Then we're bringing in and then we're saying, okay, it can't just be one person to make the decision, right? Talking about that power piece. Now we're going to do sort of this, you know, committee, this let's talk about your experience, give an example, make the interview process different to be able to glean what we need and how that can be applicable, right? And that's, you know, in an elected office, in the city agency. <laughs> and, and, and I don't want to, and there's two bookends that I don't want us to miss. The first one was recognizing that this office, the particular office that Eljoy and I were, were, were staffing is the second highest office in New York City, but it was also the office that in its name was to be an advocate. Right. So one of the things that I think equity allows us, DNI focuses a lot on the what is within any particular organization, but equity, I think, has a little bit more of an imagination. It has a little bit more innovation. What do people deserve? Starting with what people deserve really influenced who we literally tapped to be a part of this task force to be at the table because these were experts, some of which would never probably be asked to be at the table of designing a municipal office. But based off of their work and, and the evidence of their work and the communities that they center in their work, they absolutely were intrinsic to how we think about what may seem like a small issue, like hiring an assistant or hiring you know, a, a junior staffer, when the reality is when you bring in people from the community, they also are able to bring in people from the community that can be in those roles and inform. And in some ways, it's like you're getting, I don't want to say a two for one, but like it's ten it's an expertise that we do not value in this nation, that people that come in with cultural expertise are basically not only helping you succeed, they're helping you, they're helping you not fail. Because they have insider understanding. So that's one bookend is that we started with a lot of imagination about what do our people deserve and how can this office expand? And then in addition to all the different staffing needs, we also designed new offices. Like we also were like, hey, there isn't the deepest, you know, concentration on climate justice. There isn't the deepest concentration on maternal justice. Those were offices that were built new again, utilizing an equity mindset, it's about filling the gap. And I think that that's the way we could have touted like, like, yes, we have a very diverse office. Look at our diversity numbers. That's usually how organizations like to show their prowess. But we were like, look at the offices that we created based on the statistics of what's happening in the city. And, and, and I, I, you know, as we are entering into a political season, where unfortunately, what is also a common practice is that statistics and data about our communities are used as a way to lure us in to, to, to decide what is best for, you know, who is the best leader. I have been shifted how I look at presidencies. And hopefully, I, I, I think I'm in a safe space to say that I never looked at the presidency as the right person 
for the position. I looked at the presidency as which space can maximize the spaces that are needed to address the issues in my life, which is more explain, of a Explain, explain, explain. In other words, who's going to bring in the team that's going to talk about the multiple issues that are of concern in my life? And unfortunately, again, a product of oligarchical systems is that while we don't have a king or a queen or an emperor, the president in many ways is an extension of a belief that there is a person that has the vision of the free world that works for everyone. That's bullshit. That's actually not real. And many of us know that. And I say that in a way that's encouraging to folks that if you are discouraged about what your choices are, stay discouraged because I don't care if the person is your, is, is the, the person that, you know, fixed all your, your lights and fixed your plumbing and fixed everything for you, looks like you, knows you, knows your journey. That one person is actually not going to be enough to actually fix all of your issues. But what that one person does have the power to do is to create the spaces, the people, the opportunities, the policies that speak to the issues that you care about. That to me is where it's not about the people in power necessarily convincing us. It's about the people being very grounded in what they deserve. And I really wish we would talk more about the deservedness of what it means to be a human being and selecting candidates based off of share with me how you're going to talk about the future of work. Share with me your thoughts around AI. Share with me the fact that RSV and COVID is on a rise right now. What does that mean for black and brown kids that are in classrooms with no ventilation? Share with me what it means for the, the worker that goes nine to five and then six to 12 every day. That to me is an actual, you know, when you said, who is this book for? I really want the everyday person to ask and advocate way more for themselves because it's like you do deserve to be a full human being, not a plastic human being, a full one. And the people that are making decisions around you need to answer you as to what they're going to do. When people are elected is the worst time to, to start talking to people about what are you going to do for me? Now, this runway that we have is absolutely the time. Go to that town hall, disrupt that, that visit that they come to peacefully. Don't come with weapons, but disrupt it. Ask them the questions that they've been avoiding. You know the stats in your community. You know what's not working. Like, put the pressure on. And I do think that, again, through organizations like Higher Heights, through organizations like N-Double, through grassroots organizations, through these movements, electeds have responded when people have organized and pushed back in spaces that were supposed to be cookie cutter and nice and neat. They've responded to hecklers. They responded to disruptors because they recognize that, A, the camera's on them, but also that person represents a community that feels like they're not heard. And yeah. so I just think that equity is not necessarily just about decision makers. We can't wait for decision makers. We're disproportionately outnumbered by decision makers that actually come from intersectional and marginalized communities. So what does that mean? That means that we've got to take disruption as like our birthright and continue to use the data. The data and the stats are on in our favor. Things are not working for us. Use that as a way to demand for people that actually care about the data and the stats that are impacting your life. Ify. Thank yes. you so much. Thank you so much. Thank you for this labor of love, <laughs> the equity mindset, designing human spaces through journeys, reflections, and practices is available now. <clears throat> you can get it. You can also find Ify where? You, you can find me at ifomasanachi.com. It's just 13 letters. Y'all, that's not difficult. 
O-M-A-S-I-N-A-C-H-I.com. If if it's too long, just go to Amazon and see the name of on the cover of the book, put .com at the end of it. You can find me there. You could also go to pinkcornrose.com. But I guess on social, if you really want to see my boring essays, you can go to at iffy underscore works on IG. Thank you so much, Ify, for coming to the front of the class again. We certainly look forward to having you back. Don't don't be gone so long next time. No books for a while, so I'm here. All right. Thank you.